everyone, this is Green and Gold and I'm Haley Fox. I'm very happy to be kicking off 2019 with all of you and I hope everyone had a great New Year's and survived the marathon of the holidays. While I don't quite believe in making resolutions for the new year, I am a firm supporter of fresh starts. So with that in mind, we're going to take a little look forward this episode at what exciting stuff may be on the horizon for weed in LA, California, and beyond. We're going to talk to Adam Spiker, who's the executive director of the Southern California Coalition, about why LA's legal industry isn't quite where some people had hoped, and what big game changers might be on deck for 2019. But first, let's do a quick recap of 2018 in California weed. Let's take you back to January 1st, 2018. Ah, the high expectations, the promise, the excitement over being able to walk into a store and buy weed legally. On January 1st, it became legal to sell cannabis for adult use in California. While some cities were quick out of the gate to do so, I'm looking at you, West Hollywood, others, like the city of LA, took a few weeks to begin issuing recreational licenses and therefore allowing these sales of recreational weed to begin. This delay was simply a teaser of what was to come the rest of the year, as nearly everything in LA's regulatory rollout took longer than expected. In fact, as of the day we're recording this episode, LA was still firmly rooted in phase two of its licensing, with phase three still looming ahead. However, as of the end of the year, there were 169 licensed dispensaries for people to buy weed from, and the city reported that in the 2018-2019 fiscal year, they expected to make 30 to $40 million in taxes and application fees. This sounds like a lot of money, and it is, but it's still about $10 million less than they initially anticipated making in the inaugural year. Some say illegal pot shops are partly to blame. The proliferation of these businesses, these unlicensed shops, are cutting into the profits and success of the licensed ones. In fact, in 2018, shop owners said it was the steep costs of required renovations under regulation, licensing fees, and these illegal operators that were their biggest hurdles to maintaining success. The city attorney did start filing cases against unpermitted shops. At last count, there was about 140 cases. But some say this is just a small drop in the bucket. One high note from last year, LA officially introduced its social equity program. As you all know by now, this program is designed to help those hardest hit by the war on drugs enter and succeed in the legal industry. While the city allocated no funding for the program, a state bill passed in 2018 did. $10 million to be exact, which will eventually go to help bolster local social equity programs, like LA's, by providing loans or other forms of financial support. Okay, now for a peek at what's to come this year, and a little more insight as to why things played out the way they did last year, let's get to Adam Spiker. He's the co-founder and executive director of the cannabis trade group, the Southern California Coalition. Did 2018 go as planned? Or as expected, I guess? Um, That's a yes or no for me. I, I mean, you know, 
my background's in politics, so I've certainly seen how the, the, the political and bureaucratic process can be delayed. And uh, so from that standpoint of kind of the delays in licensing and delays in enforcement, I'm not terribly surprised. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think we're finishing on a strong note, which is, you know, better than nothing, you know, having phase two now being started and people now getting licensed in the city of LA for production to have a supply chain before the end of the year's a is a start. So basically, to clarify for people, um, you know, most of this year then consisted of kind of laying the groundwork and the infrastructure and getting that first round of dispensaries licensed. Um, and then it seems like in this last, like you said, month or so, we're finally getting to getting the rest of the supply chain up and running, um, heading into the new year. So from an industry standpoint, yes, I think, uh, you know, from the bigger picture, you ha- you had the city still putting you know, again, if we're talking about L.A., you had the city still putting the pieces together for, for their bureaucratic program, the, the Department of Cannabis Regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's creating a brand new, in, uh, you know, regulatory body from scratch and getting employees in it, getting them trained, getting them to understand an industry most bureaucratic employees don't understand. So from their standpoint, and as well, continuing to evolve the you know, the ordinance and the land use and the social equity program, a lot of a lot of uh, variables in the equation, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. not just about the industry and what they got out of it. But you couldn't get to that point without the city figuring out some things internally. And that's what I'm kind of curious about, too. You know, um, obviously, a lot of this, because it's brand new territory, couldn't have been anticipated. It seems like some of it could have, you know, like, for example, the staffing of the Department of Cannabis Regulation, the yeah. fact that it had one and then three people up until just a few months ago. I'm curious whether you think there were certain things that the city just kind of dropped the ball on that could have been anticipated. There's a ton of cooks in the kitchen when you deal with a city the size of LA. And so to get all of them or the key people to agree to each pr- part of the process is challenging. I do, I do go back to last year. Uh, I take that back. I'll go back to the year before when we qualified Prop M to the ballot through the city council. And then there was a citizens initiative that was on the same ballot. I think everyone in the city knew one of them was going to pass. And so at that time, they could have put some resources behind, okay, one of these is going to pass. We better be ready. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. I think that's probably the only thing I'd look back. And I think the city would look back and say, yeah, you know, we, we could have started earlier with our side of the process, and they, they really didn't until M passed. And for those listening, can you just give like a one-sentence explainer of what those measures did specifically? Sure. So Prop N was, like I said, it was a citizen's initiative that was created you know, by a, basically a, a smaller group of pre-existing, pre-ICO operators that you know, they were trying to force the issue. You know, I think a lot of the pre-ICOs have had their starts and stops with the city on trying to get a pathway to licensing. Mm -hmm. They decided to put the money up, I think it was a little over a million dollars, to force the issue. So that was a citizen's initiative. They gathered signatures to qualify uh, an initiative for the ballot. What we did with Prop M is we went to the city and we got the city council to agree towards Prop M in that policy so when they voted on it through council, it was um, it was adopted to the same ballot. 
So gotcha. we didn't have to go gather signatures or anything. We just had to work the city council politically. And that ultimately is what set a lot of the regulations at the local level. It, it, tax, it did. Tax rates and stuff like so that. So it locked in the tax rates. Uh, we're very proud of that negotiation. They're very competitive. What we couldn't do is because there was a citizen's initiative on the ballot, we couldn't think of any everything and deal with all aspects of the program to put into the initiative. Mm-hmm. For instance, land use, dealing with sequel. Uh, you know, the amount of licenses, how the licensing would work. We could lock in the tax rates. We could promise there was going to be a social equity program, maybe a couple other things. But ultimately, we had to give the power back to the city to put everything else together. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've heard from licensed business owners? So at this point, mostly dispensary owners. Um, What have they cited as some of the biggest hurdles this year in terms of getting up and running and getting, you know, keeping their stream of customers and really running a successful regulated business? Pain. They're they're dealing with pain, whether, whether you have the licensed shops or you have the suppliers that they used to work with that was part of the 12-point criteria for phase two was that pre-existing relationship. Once they got their license, they could no longer legally work with those entities anymore. So you had supply issues. But ultimately, I think every licensed shop to a T would say that when they got their license and they started to have to uh, apply the taxes locally and state to what their patients before used to have to pay for the same product, they lost a lot of patients and a lot of customers. And so that is a big issue. I think in education, the city is definitely working on a program to create more education of what licensed product is versus unlicensed. I think you'll see that soon. Clearly, number one on their minds is enforcement, though. Mm -hmm. We have not done a good enough job enforcing illegal retail stores. There are still too many of them out there. And it's taking food off the plate of our licensed members' businesses. And can you tell us, because um, I know there's it's a range, but in terms of the taxes, mm-hmm. like approximately how much that did increase, like in terms of what they passed on to the customer? It, it, it probably all in in LA, I think it was right around 37 or 38 percent. More than yes, what they were paying. Correct. Wow. Um, but, you know, if you want to get into the weeds further than that, you know, as being a licensed entity, you're also agreeing to laboratory testing of all your product. You're agreeing to take your product from a licensed third-party distributor. You're agreeing to much uh, more stringent security protocols. All these things cost money. Mm -hmm. And so to quantify those aspects as well, you know, would be a significant difference from maybe a, a rogue dispensary. So 37, 38% is my understanding, but I think that gap is different when you factor in the costs of being a compliant regulated business. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but um, in terms of the illegal market here and kind of throughout California, which on both fronts seems to be flourishing, I feel like some people would question as to why um because if there seems like there's a legal a pathway to legality why wouldn't people take it i'm curious why you think that is is it just solely because it's cheaper it's because people are comfortable like why do you think kind of this the illegal side continues to do so well well i'd say the majority of the industry is still in the gray area spectrum vastly maybe as much as 75 80 percent of it so there's more money to be made there mm-hmm. probably you know less overhead like we just talked about but i think the other thing is when you look at retail in the state 
I would say the opportunity is still very sparse. And so I, I, I would question or, or include in that conversation whether those folks felt like they were going to have a legitimate shot at getting a license. Mm-hmm. I mean, in L.A., there's no such thing as a new license for retail yet. Oh, yeah, that's true, because they all went to pre-existing Correct. longtime operators. And so you had said, you know, um, now that the city's looking at enforcement, moving forward for 2019, um, kind of we'll get to some of these other licensing issues. But what do you think would be will be an effective approach to actually cutting back on the number of illegal businesses? I mean, what's it going to take? Uh, I think I think more licensing opportunity helps. So getting the social equity program up and running in L.A. Um, and getting phase three up and running and creating more licensing opportunity for retail, not only storefront, but for delivery helps. I think from a straight enforcement standpoint, the city has some tools in their in their tool belt. For instance, in Prop M, there was a provision in there that said that the city could enforce a $20,000 day fine to the operator and landlord. Oh, uh-huh. um, I, I know that there's been some questions in City Hall about how to do it or if it's actually enforceable, but that was something we fought for very passionately when we were figuring out what we could include in Prop M. And I think whatever tools the city has in their tool belt, it's time to deploy them. And it's got to be more than just you know, manpower, because they don't have enough of it to go after all the illicit activity. Either they start making examples of people that they do catch, Mm -hmm. you know, or they need to get more creative with broader stroked enforcement. That to me is probably our best pathway, but there's not a ton of options, uh, you know, yet, but those are the ones that come to mind. As of now, with a lot of any sort of retail or commercial storefront, a lot of the city or police's involvement um, come from neighbor complaints or, you know, uh, nuisance issues. And I'm wondering if you've heard or seen of this in relation to these businesses, like is the greater LA community even aware that this is something I guess they could be participating in? Or does that actually lead to anything? I mean, how much you know, and I know the Department of Cannabis Regulation hasn't had a lot of extra manpower to do this outreach. So I'm kind of curious, you know, how much this might play into it at all. Well, a large chunk of the complaints post-licensing are coming from the licensed operators now. Okay. Um, um, the communities, I'm sure, are still complaining. But I would I, I would argue that there's now that you have licensed versus unlicensed, without education to the communities about the difference hard for them to call in and say, this one's clearly illegal. Mm-hmm. You should do something about it. Some of them are are well put together and look pretty nice. I mean, a lot of them are not so nice, but you, you know, I think the, the lay person might not know the difference now. You know, I think we should spend a little bit of the tax revenue coming in or deploy some resources towards I, helping them identify it. But I, it, to me, it's going to be a team effort. The, the industry, once they get licensed... You, we're already seeing it with the phase ones. I think you'll see it with phase twos. If people are blatantly undercutting their business right down the street from them, they're going to go complain because it's their livelihood on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what you would say to people listening who are, um, you know, cannabis consumers who want to go out and buy the best product, but also for the cheapest price. I guess what's the motivation consumers have to seek out and support legal businesses as opposed to you know, illegal ones? Well, to me, it's about safety. It's product safety. I mean, a compliant or regulated business is going to have to check boxes that 
local, state, even federal regulators, you know, put on them to ensure public safety and consumer safety, you're not going to necessarily know what you get if you go to a, an illegal store. You know, I think it's, um, I don't want to say a game of Russian roulette, but I think you're playing with fire, you know, knowing that y you might not know what you get. Whereas when you go to a licensed entity right now, yeah, you're paying more, but that business now has, um, uh, you know, a license and something tangible to lose if they go against the regulatory uh, measures that are put in place as part of the agreement of issuing them a license. And mm -hmm. Looking forward for 2019, what are you most, I guess, looking forward to or optimistic about in terms of changes in the industry or what LA's, you know, from now until a year from now, what, what LA's going to look like? Yeah, I think the successful implementation of the social equity program is critical, not only to LA, but to the rest of the state. I think nationally, I think so many eyeballs are on this to see that it's done right so that it could potentially be implemented in other areas around the country that have faced the same issues with the war on drugs. So that, to me in LA, that's number one, is definitely getting that program successfully implemented. Getting the the licensed delivery folks. I think delivery is a key component of this industry. We've seen the uh, data from San Francisco about how much of retail is now coming from delivery. I think last year it might have gotten closer to 50%. Oh, wow. Um don't quote me on that, but um, I could certainly <laughs> I could certainly backfill you with that info. But um, I, I think we need that option in L.A. You know, I think you need both so that the consumer or the patient has the, you know, as many access points to legal cannabis as possible. Our focus will be certainly making sure that um, we continue to partner and work with the city on tweaks to the ordinance, tweaks to the process, licensing, other jurisdictions, certainly we want to focus on other jurisdictions, getting them online, L.A. County, Riverside County, Orange County. And then the other big issue, without a doubt, is at the state level, is getting a successful tax bill through the legislature, something that can reduce the tax burden on this industry as it grows. I think the analogy, I might have used it with you before, is that when our government decided to lift prohibition of alcohol, I think it was 1932, the next year, the federal government put their first tax on alcohol and it was 2%. You know, oh, wow. as, as they were transitioning, or maybe maybe a better word would be incentivizing the illicit activity back then, the bootlegging and God knows what else, trying to incentivize it to come out of the shadows and into regulation. Mm -hmm. And then they started upping the taxes from there once they were successfully getting it. We haven't successfully done that in California yet. I, we're nowhere close to capturing the supply and demand through licensed or regulated means. And so to lower the tax burden, not only of the businesses that are doing it right and giving them a fair shake, but also maybe as an incentive to those that haven't come out of the shadows that, okay, may, maybe I should now. And then um, just one last thing about the social equity program, because that's something we talk about on the show a lot, and it's obviously a huge issue. Obviously, this year it was introduced, but the city had not allocated any sort of money for it, um, which is why it's relied a lot on these kind of partnerships. But I'm curious whether you think, you know, um, we know the state approved a bill that would put $10 million aside for these various local social equity programs. Is that enough? Does the city need to work at building its own fund? What do you think is really crucial to its success at this point? 
I think the best help for the social equity program is a thriving uh, industry in general. I think those partnerships and incentivizing those partnerships with the people that have been in the industry, that have seen it all, that know how to survive, big misnomer out there that if you're in the weed business, you're a millionaire. It's hard out there. You know, we talked about the pain they're enduring. And so as you start bringing this opportunity to the social equity eligible applicant who may not have a skill set in the industry, the potential apprenticeship or partnering with people that have and incentivizing them to work together, I think that's the most powerful tool. You know, could we use some supplementing from local and state government? Sure. But, you know, when that happens and how it happens, you know, $10 million from the state is great. That can get spent very quickly in one small town because these businesses are very expensive to set up and operate. So it's a, you know, in some ways it's kind of a drop in the bucket when in LA we're looking at hundreds and hundreds of social equity applicants, hopefully, and licenses. The, I, in my opinion, you can't rely on the local government or the state government um, to fund that. I think you need to incentivize the industry and outside investment to come in. And that's been, that, that's been my, one of my private focuses is bringing those types of investors that um, see the program, like the program, and want to help bring resources and be that minority partner, that's that's definitely a private focus that we've been working on. And we've identified companies that are more than happy to do that and are introducing them to the city. Incentivizing the industry and, and investment to want to come in and help, That's uh, I think that's going to be the most critical part of it. Okay, all that was Adam Spiker of the Southern California Coalition. And that's it for our first show of the new year. Can't wait to keep covering this bananas industry with you. As always, you can find me on Twitter at EP Fox and Instagram at Penny underscore gadget. Don't forget, this is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes Productions is an LA-based, woman-owned podcast network. And you can check out all of our other badass shows at tablecakes.com. You can also support Green and Gold by visiting patreon.com backslash tablecakes. All right, later, buds.